And uh, the, the title for the sermon this morning is, It's the Heart That Matters. Right, so let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, for granting to us uh, another opportunity uh, to study your word. And uh, please help us to be uh, attentive. May all obstacles and hindrances be removed. And may we be submissive uh, and teachable. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand and apply your word. Uh, we ask this uh, in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, at this particular time in his ministry, Jesus is experiencing a great popularity amongst the common people. Uh, think of the political polls. His ratings were quite high as the preferred king. And his popularity is evident in the previous chapter where he fed the 5,000. Okay, the masses were following him. There was an enthrallment with Jesus. They wanted to witness his miracles, that they desired to hear him teach. Now, we know this was short-lived. Most of them fell away like the autumn leaves. The majority failed to understand who Jesus was and why he came. But at this moment, Jesus was the most popular guy in town. But not all were fans of Jesus. Okay, despite experiencing phenomenal popularity amongst the common folk, the Jewish religious leaders did not share these positive sentiments. Okay, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, they despised Jesus. He was a thorn in their flesh. And this deep-seated and all-consuming hatred was fueled by a number of things. Okay, number one, Jesus claimed to be Messiah. Number two, he deconstructed their works-based religious system. Number three, he possessed influence over the people that the religious leaders craved, so there was envy. And then number four, he did not honor and esteem their traditions and oral laws. And hence these religious leaders sought to destroy Jesus. They wanted to swing the wrecking ball through his ministry and smash it to smithereens. Okay, they launched classic smear campaigns. They tried to trap Jesus in these no-win situations. And they ended up hatching the plan of his death. Okay, and think about that. That's devastating irony. Okay, here are the religious leaders, that the ones who are the experts in the Old Testament, who end up becoming engulfed with such great depths of jealousy and hatred, that they despised and rejected the one that they and their people had longed for. Okay, the, the whole Old Testament, it's about the coming Messiah. It's about Jesus. This was their great hope. This was their great expectation. And the so-called experts in the Old Testament scriptures, they missed him. He's right in front of them. But they never accepted him. But rather actively and vigorously opposed him. And that's a graphic illustration of the wickedness and depravity of mankind. And the attempt to discredit, defame, and ultimately destroy Jesus, it begins to gather momentum in the text before us. And the particular hostility towards Jesus in our text, it stems from Jesus' refusal to regard the tradition of the elders as possessing the same level of authority as the word of God. Okay, and this offended and provoked the religious leaders. Okay, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they revered 
the traditions of the elders, okay, that they regarded them at least equal, if not above, the authority of the Scriptures. Okay, in verse 1, we're introduced to the antagonists who were out to get Jesus. Okay, there was a group of Pharisees and certain scribes. Okay, so a Pharisee was a member of the strictest religious sect, and a scribe, they were regarded as lawyers specializing in the Old Testament and in the oral tradition. And what we read of here is that a special contingent had been sent from Jerusalem. Okay, remember Jerusalem is the headquarters, that's where the big bosses reside, and this contingent had been sent to Galilee, and they'd been sent on a mission to gather evidence against Jesus that could be used to plot his downfall. So, so it's like these special force troops have been deployed on the mission, get Jesus. Now, it isn't entirely clear who arranged this special crew to be deployed. Some suggest that the Pharisees in Galilee had sent a request for asking help. Okay, we need a special team to come and impeach Jesus, and perhaps that's the case. But what we do know is that the trip from Jerusalem up to Galilee is over 100 kilometers. Okay, so this special team had quite the journey to make, and what this reveals is their determination to incriminate Jesus. And in verse 2, they begin gathering evidence that could be loaded into the gun and shot at Jesus. Okay, we're told in verse 2 that, that this group that had been sent, they saw some of the disciples. Okay, so try and get that picture in your mind that this special group, they were watching their every move. And what's like in the movies when you see someone being followed and their every move is monitored. That's the picture. Everything that Jesus did, everything that his disciples did was closely scrutinized. And as they were watching closely, okay, as they're watching their every move, you can almost picture their eyes light up when they see something. It's like, hey, we, we've got them. We've finally got some evidence. And in the text, they come to Jesus with this evidence accusing his disciples. But what we need to understand, in accusing their disciples, this was an indirect attack of Jesus. Okay, so this was designed to show that Jesus was not teaching his disciples correctly. And as their master, he was responsible for their conduct. Okay, so even in accusing the disciples, they are after Jesus. And as this group brings their case before Jesus, you can almost hear a hush of silence coming over the people that had gathered, okay, as, as they barged their way in, professing to have this charge against Jesus. And you can almost hear the hearts of the disciples beating faster as it appears, oh no, what, what have we done this time? And then the curiosity of the onlookers, it must have been sky high as they listened on to see, okay, what, what's this great charge? What, what have they got against Jesus and his disciples? What is the accusation? But as you and I read about this accusation, okay, we read about it through our modern lenses and we tend to think, what in the world? Why does this even matter? Okay, look at the accusation in verse 2. It says, And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defile, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. 
Okay, so they ate bread with unwashed hands and we think, oh no, how bad. Criminal behavior locked them up. You know, this was the damning evidence brought to discredit and disfame Jesus. His disciples hadn't washed their hands. Now, we need to understand what this accusation is all about. Okay, this is not about healthy habits. Okay, this is not a hygiene or sanitation issue. Okay, this is not that the disciples had dirty hands after the day's activities and forgot to wash them before they had lunch. Okay, this is not like if you've ever been a leader at a youth camp and trying to get the young boys to shower. Okay, it's not that. Okay, th these accusers were not concerned that the disciples might get sick because they didn't wash their hands. Okay, these religious zealots are not confronting a lack of personal hygiene. But rather the issue here is ceremonial washing. We actually have a description in verses 3 and 4. And these verses, they, they function as a parenthesis. And, and this is provided because the Gospel of Mark was written to the Romans primarily. And hence, they would not have been familiar with the Jewish custom. It's interesting that in Matthew's Gospel, which was written okay, to the Jews, it does not include this clarifying statement. Now, this washing of hands, it spoke of ceremonial washing that dedicated Jews strictly observed. And we need to understand it was a rigid, extensive ritual for washing before meals. Okay? And it was this that formed the basis of the accusation against Jesus and his disciples. Okay? It wasn't enough to properly clean your hands if they were dirty like we would before we eat a meal. But rather you would wash your hands to make them clean and then perform the ritual to make them spiritually clean. Okay, and this ritual washing went like so, and, and I quote, okay, first, water was poured from a jar onto both hands with the fingers pointing up like so, so the water would run down off the wrists. Then the water was again poured over the hands, this time with the fingers pointing down. And finally, each hand was rubbed with the fist of the other hand like so, and strict Jews would follow these regulations before every meal and between each course of the meal. So imagine that if you had like a five course meal and you have to do that between every single course. Talk about making dinner a long drawn out process. But you know, I, I joke about it, but this is what we need to understand. The Jews were deadly serious about performing this ritual. So much so that the rabbis said bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. And there was another story of a rabbi who was imprisoned by the Romans and he used his ration of water for ceremonial cleansing instead of drinking, and he almost died of thirst. And he was regarded as a great hero for the sacrifice. Okay, this is something that they took very seriously. But the key to understanding the points of this passage okay, is by asking this question, why did they do it? Okay, what was the grounds that this was performed on? Okay, or, to word it very simply, is this in the Bible? Okay, the law of Moses prescribed ceremonial washings for priests. This is recorded in Leviticus 22, verses 6 and 7. And other washings are mentioned in Exodus 30, verse 19, and chapter 40, verse 12. But we need to understand that it did not require okay, normal people to wash their hands in this particular way before they ate food. 
So the Pharisees insisted that the Jews undertake these specific ceremonial washings, not because they were biblically commanded, but because they were part of the rabbinic teaching. So in other words, they were obsessed with rituals. They were obsessed with tradition. Okay, notice in verse 3, it speaks of the tradition of the elders. So we need to understand that in Judaism, okay, that they honored the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. That was referred to as the written law. But then there was also what was called the oral law. And this speaks of rabbinic teaching that had been passed on from generation to generation. And this oral law was man's tradition and the rabbi's interpretation of the written law. And originally this oral law, it was actually designed to build a fence around the written law. Okay, they wanted to preserve it. They wanted to make sure that the people kept it. But the problem is, although these traditions originated to protect and aid in the understanding the scriptures, these oral traditions ended up becoming equal in authority with the scriptures. Okay, and in the time of Christ, they actually usurped the scriptures in authority in the Jewish mind. Okay, the rabbinic tradition had greater authority than the scriptures. Okay, and this was a widespread problem in Jesus' ministry. If I read a couple of quotes that illustrates this point. Okay, Rabbi Eliezer said, He who expounds the scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. And then the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish traditions, records it's a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. Okay, so in other words, if the rabbi contradicts scripture, you believe the rabbi. Okay, so the Jews of Jesus' time, that they held the traditions in higher regard than the scriptures. The teaching of man had greater authority than the word of God, and they measured their spiritual condition. They measured divine approval in terms of their external observance of traditional ceremonies and rituals. So the Jewish religion judged one's holiness, judged one's spirituality, judged one's approval in God's sight by their rigid attention to the mere external observance of man-made tradition. And it's this that forms the basis of the allegation that's fired at Jesus. Why do your disciples fail to keep the tradition of the elders? Why do you allow them to deliberately disobey the teachings of the rabbis? Okay, this is not about personal hygiene. This is about the man-made rituals and traditions that had been elevated at the time. And in confronting this accusation, Jesus offers two stinging rebukes in reply. And within these rebukes, there are some valuable and vital lessons for us today. So the first rebuke confronts the authority of their religion. Within their religion, the Pharisees were guilty of teaching and enforcing man-made rules as though they were from God. In fact, they actually went further than this. The rabbis' interpretations were more authoritative than the scriptures. So they ended up valuing their traditions more than the law. Now, it's unlikely that they ever started off with this intention. 
As I mentioned previously, the oral law was originally designed to protect, to, to build a fence around the written law, to ensure that the people followed it. And you can, you can almost hear this justification for the washing of hands. It's, it's not as silly as we first imagine. Okay, one commentator offered this explanation. He says, although this sounds somewhat silly to us, we don't realize how subtly these things emerge and how spiritual they seem to be, especially in the beginning. Many rituals or traditions seem to be built on unshakable spiritual logic. Doesn't God want us to honor him in everything we do? Doesn't God command the priests to wash their hands before serving him? Shouldn't every faithful follower of God have the same devotion as a priest? Isn't every meal sacred to God? Shouldn't we take every opportunity to make ourselves pure before the Lord? Doesn't God say in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Okay, so this ceremonial hand-washing tradition can seem to be built on spiritual logic. I'm sure the rabbis presented it convincingly. And hence it was regarded to have the same authority as if it come from the Lord itself, as if, as if it was written in the Bible. And this was the problem that Jesus confronted. Okay, they were investing authority that belonged to God's word alone into the teachings, traditions, and rituals of men. And Jesus opposes this in verse 7 through to verse 9. Okay, let's, let's read that. Okay, verse 7. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of man as the washing of pots and cups and many other such things like ye do. And he said unto them, full well, ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Okay, in this rebuke, Jesus first confronts them with the fact that they taught their opinions and, and their convictions, okay, convictions of men, as if they were doctrine, that meaning as if they come directly from the mouth of God. Okay, they were saying, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord didn't say it. Okay, so what these rabbis spoke was documented and held to as if it was scripture. But they went even further than this. That They actually laid aside the commandments of God. Okay, and this word laid aside, it means to send away or to forsake. And it was actually used when a husband divorced his wife. He put her away. And this is what the Pharisees, the scribes, had ended up doing with the law of God. They had divorced the scriptures. They had put them away. They had taken a new wife of the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders. So it wasn't that they had just added man's teaching, which is dangerous enough, but they had displaced God's law with their own. Okay, their traditions were valued more than the scriptures. Okay, and we too need to be alert and aware to this same danger. It's a little bit different for us. I don't sense washing hands is a big thing for us in this sense. Hopefully we wash them before our meals, of course. But you know that there are two warnings that we must take heed of from this first rebuke. Okay, number one. We need to be aware of giving man too much authority. Okay, we can be guilty of giving man too much authority just like these Pharisees. 
Okay, how does this play out for us? Well, we like a particular author, particular website, a particular podcast, a particular pastor. Okay, and whatever they say, no matter what, we take it as gospel. Whether it be a church father, a great theologian, one of the reformers, a Puritan, whether it be a modern day pastor, and we invest, sorry, we invest undue authority in these men or women. And we end up thinking that they are infallible, okay, that they are inerrant. But we must remember that it's only the scriptures, it's only the word of God that is inerrant and infallible. Okay, no man's interpretation or opinion can claim infallibility. And hence, we must be wary of not giving to man or to giving to a particular website or an author authority that does not belong to them. Okay, our theology, our doctrine needs to come from the scriptures, not from men. Okay, now sure, okay, these authors, these pastors, these websites can help our understanding. Absolutely. You know, I've got a lot of books. Okay, but we, we need to understand that you're just because, say, Calvin said it, or Augustine said it, or if Paul Tripp said it, or if Charles Ryrie said it, or if Jim Berg said it, or if Brendan Fisher said it, that doesn't possess the authority of the Bible. Okay, we need to understand that. No man or woman, no website, no author, no podcast is infallible. It's not the ultimate authority. Okay, and I would suggest that this is something that is plaguing the church today. You know, I, I've seen people in church comparing what the preacher says in church with their favorite website. Okay, they don't have the Bible open. They've got their favorite website open. P people depart from orthodox belief that the church has held to for thousands of years because some crazy preacher that they idolized said to do it. Okay, this is real. This is dangerous. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't read. It doesn't mean we don't listen to things, but we must guard against investing unwarranted authority in man only the bible is infallible no author preacher or website possesses it that's the first lesson the second lesson we learn from this first rebuke is we must be aware of presenting personal convictions as scripture okay we all have personal opinions and convictions it's a good thing some of them are, are based on scriptural principles Whereas some are shaped by our upbringing, our life experience, and our weaknesses. Okay? In areas that I struggle with, I will need to be stricter than you may have to be in that area in your life. But we must be alert and aware of the danger of pushing our personal convictions as if we have the authority of God behind them, and then judging others as though they are spiritually inferior because they do not hold to our personal opinions. My friend, please understand this is one type of legalism. Okay, holding up some personal opinion that the Bible doesn't say it clearly. Okay, and this lurks in the hearts of each and every one of us. Okay, we need to remember that not everything in the Christian life is right and wrong. Some things are simply matters of personal conscience and opinion before God, and they shouldn't be regarded as doctrine from God. Okay, here's some examples of such things. One may not watch television. One may be convinced about a certain form of schooling. One may refuse to watch sport. One may wear a suit and tie to every church service. One may have no social media. 
One may think ladies always have to wear a dress to church. One may have very strong political party views, and I'm sure you can think of many, many more things that the Bible don't address directly. Okay, and the thing with these convictions is that usually they're not wrong or there's, there's nothing sinful about them, but they're not scripture. Okay, the Bible doesn't say you are to do or not do any of these things. And hence these personal convictions cannot be pushed as if they are from God and then form this criteria that you use to judge the spiritual condition of others. My friend, that's legalism 101. Yeah, and so often we can get bent out of shape about these things okay, that God actually doesn't command compared to the things that God actually does command. Okay, we're worried about the one who doesn't wear the tie to church or the lady who doesn't wear a dress. Okay, we're more concerned about that than we are about our brother or sister who doesn't love someone else in the church. Something that God has clearly commands. My friends, such behavior is pharisaic, it's legalistic, it's poisonous, and it needs to be eradicated from the church. Okay, we all have personal convictions, and that's fine, but we cannot push them as though they come directly from God when they do not. And if this is something that you're guilty of, I, I encourage you, repent this morning, deal with that legalism. There's grace, there's forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, stop acting in a way that blatantly contradicts the gospel. Okay, you can have personal convictions, but don't treat them as though they're scripture. So that's the first rebuke. It confronts the authority of their religion. The second rebuke confronts the authenticity of their religion. Now, the Pharisees were convinced that their religion was pleasing to God. And they thought that the more one was dedicated to, to rigidly adhere to the external observance of both the written and oral law, okay, the traditions, they were the holiest, they were the godliest, they were the most pleasing to the Lord. Okay, that, that's, that's their worldview. But Jesus here puts a piece of verbal dynamite under their religious system. For true religion, true worship it's not about the external but the internal this is the message of jesus notice verses six and seven he answered and said unto them well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites as it's written this people honoreth me with their lips but their heart is far from me Howbeit in vain do they worship me jesus didn't hold back this is a stinging rebuke jesus steps into the boxing ring to take on this religious elites he takes on those who regarded themselves and were regarded by others as the spiritual elites. But the Lord makes it more than clear that okay, this couldn't be further from the truth. He actually identifies them as fakes and frauds. Okay, th th this group is identified as hypocrites. Okay, this term was used of an actor who would wear a mask to assume the identity and character of another. Okay, so that's what the term hypocrite means, and this is what he's accusing them of. Okay, this term implied that these Pharisees were simply wearing a religious mask. It was not genuine. And it was not what God desired. Okay, that the image they promoted was more important to them than what they actually were. And a prophecy from Isaiah is quoted in verse 6. 
Now, the prophet Isaiah didn't necessarily have the Pharisees in mind when he wrote it, but it describes them perfectly. And it says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's from Isaiah 29, I believe, verse 13. And the accusation here is, guys, for you, it's, it's all about the external. It's all about your tradition. It's all about your ritual. It's about ceremonial washing. And sure, it, it all appears impressive, but in the sight of the Lord, it was, it was mere lip service. It was all superficial. It was all for show. It's only skin deep. You, you, that they were not worshipping as God prescribed, that they're more concerned about the outward than their own heart relationship with God. And this had actually been a problem that had plagued Israel for centuries. It was not only about worshipping the right God, but it's worshipping the right way. And often Israel were guilty of heartless religion. It was just an external facade. In Isaiah chapter 1, that the prophet rebukes the people for their cold and heartless religion. Okay, that they offered the correct sacrifices. That they offered them in abundance. They observed the feast. They observed the festivals. That they continually fasted. And yet they did this from hearts that were unrepentant. Hearts that were far from God. And hence it was rejected. Okay, in Joel chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 we read of something similar. It says, Therefore also now saith the Lord... Turn ye even to me with all your hearts, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. Okay, the, the, the phraseology here, rend your hearts, not your garments. It was the heart, it, it's the internal that God was interested in, not so much the external. True religion, true worship, it's a matter of the hearts. And this has always been the way. Okay, the external merely flows out of the hearts. Okay, think of what's referred to as the Shema. It's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. My friend, true worship, true religion comes from the hearts. Okay, all outward observances are worth nothing in God's sight if our hearts are far from him it's the heart that God chiefly notices his eyes look through the external facade you can't fool God you may well be able to fool everyone in this room spray on your Christian deodorants but that doesn't work with the Lord he sees straight through it my friend God wants our hearts God wants our love, true worship that pleases and honors God comes from our hearts. As one author put it, God will only receive and be pleased with worship that flows from a heart that loves him and seeks to obey his words. And yet I wonder how often okay, we can come to church and we can be just like the Pharisees. Our worship, it's external. Sure, our bodies are present, but our hearts have been left somewhere else. My friend, that, that's not acceptable in God's sight. And, and I wonder how often in our lives, okay, we may look, smell, and sound like a Christian. The external may look good, but our hearts are far from God. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Okay, our, our hearts have been captivated by something else. You know, our hearts have been hooked by, by this world. 
They've fallen in love with money or material possessions or relationships or jobs or hobbies or study or some other thing. And, and you've drifted from the Lord. Maybe that describes you this morning. Okay, you know that you know, most of your Christian life is just external and your heart has grown cold. You've drifted from the Lord. My friend, if that's you, return to the Lord. Repent. Return. Plead for his help to make it right. You know, in Isaiah chapter 1 that I, I refer, referenced previously, that these people, they had fallen into externalism. And yet their hearts had grown far from the Lord. And yet there was a divine invitation extended to them. Okay, Isaiah 1 verse 18 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The invitation's extended to you. Perhaps your heart has grown distant and cold. Or perhaps your Christian life has just become external. Okay, you come to church and, and yet your heart's far from the Lord. Okay, you sing, you give, you, you, you fellowship, and yet your heart's far from God. Monday to Saturday, your, your heart is definitely far from the Lord. My dear friend, if that is you, make it right this morning. Okay, repent. Return to the Lord. Okay, that there is unfathomable grace and forgiveness to be found in Christ. Return to him. And here's the good news. Jesus will not reject you. He, he will not cast you out for growing distant and cold. And, and even if this is the hundredth time this has happened in your life, Jesus won't reject you. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. That's the promise. Okay, return to the Lord. Get back into the word. Read the Bible. Meditate on the scriptures. Understand that meditation is the key to stoke and grow our love for the Lord. Okay, meditation on the word will lead to love for God and will lead to obedience. Pray to the Lord regularly. Ask for his enabling grace. Believe that it is sufficient. Make the Lord your priority. And remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. That's how you love him with all of your heart, soul, and mind. It was so easy for the Christian life to become external. For us to just be going through the motions, and yet for our heart to grow cold. That's a danger for each and every one of us. And may the Lord help us. May it never be said of us that we honor the Lord with our lips, but our heart is far from him. But rather, by his grace, may it be said of us that we love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for your word. Uh, it, it continues to amaze me that something that was written so long ago is still so relevant to us today. That, that's a testament to the divine nature of your word. Lord, we're, we're all at different places uh, in our life and in our spiritual lives. We've all got different needs. Uh, but I do pray that each and every one of us here this morning uh, would be uh, sensitive and willing uh, to make uh, any changes uh, that may be required uh, in our lives. And all of us, we can all grow uh, in our love for you. And uh, may, may that be happening. Uh, in each and every life, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.